church. Good to be together today. Today, we are in Luke chapter 16. As we continue our sermon series that we've entitled, This is the Way, where we're following the life and the teachings and the ministry and the work of Jesus from beginning to end, as the author Luke told it in one of the books in your Bible called Luke. And you're going to remember, you're going to remember this because I keep telling you each week that Jesus is doing all of his teaching that we're in the middle of under the banner of the intensity of he's on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. He knows that his disciples don't quite understand that he's going to be tortured and killed just yet, but he knows that. And so most of Luke's book is under that banner from Luke nine to 19. And we're in we're in Luke 16. And so he is trying to drill some important lessons, some important kingdom realities into his disciples on this journey while there's still time. And so in Luke 16, we're going to be addressing, uh, well, Jesus is going to be addressing one of the most insidious, deceptive enemies of the kingdom, one of the sneakiest most camouflaged enemies of the Christian life that exists, and it is not Satan. You, you actually brought this enemy, most likely, in with you today. It's in your pocket. It's money. It's money. So in Luke 16, it's for sure not the only time Jesus addresses money. It's not the only time that he addresses the threat the very real and present threat that money is to Christian living or kingdom living, but it's saturated here in this chapter. It's direct, it's explicit, it's weighty. And so I'll just begin with the end in mind. If you do not see money as the ever-present threat, the dangerous threat, the worthy enemy, the, 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 the money is to your love and devotion for God, then you do not see money accurately. And that's just the reality of it when you listen to Jesus. So Jesus, not just Jesus, but especially when Paul starts unpacking it some more, all of scripture, but it's all centered on Jesus, of course. He has a very substantial and norm-busting perspective on money. The kingdom way, Christ's way, is not normal. And it is likely his view and approach to money is not shared by you. It is likely that it's not shared by you. Even if you have some intellectual agreement and amening for Jesus and his view of money, the kingdom view of money, even if you intellectually agree with it, you likely do not practice it. That's how extreme it is. And you might not even be aware, or you might not want to be aware. I know I am standing before you confessing that that's the case for me. So I'm not just preaching to you. So I want to introduce chapter 16's teaching on money by briefly going back to the end of chapter 15. Last week we covered... uh, beautiful parable that talks about the heart of God called that's often called the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son and while we only looked last week at one of the sons it's the it it has two sons in this story and the younger one you might remember if you were here last week 
He asked for his inheritance from his father, who's the God figure. He asked for it early and then he took it out and he wasted it. And, uh, and then he returned to his father, humble and repentant. And then we have this beautiful uh, picture of the father eagerly receiving him back and restoring relationship, throwing a big party for him. But I didn't get to finish it. Jesus doesn't finish with that restoration of the younger son. He then has a scene and the chapter ends with the older son. And so I want to read that to you and just launch into 16, looking a little bit at 15. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, pay attention. All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes has come home, you kill a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me. And everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and alive again. He was lost and is found. Oh, there's so much to say here, but we have so much to cover each week. I can't say it all. The word prodigal, that's the the name we give to this parable, prodigal. It means like lavishly wasteful of the resources that you have. And we rightly get that name for this parable from that younger son because he gets that inheritance and he goes and he lavishly wastes it. I get that. But after reading what the older son does here at the end, we might more rightly call him the prodigal son. The one that is lavishly wasteful of the resources that he has at hand because he's viewing his relationship with the Father, his life with the Father, his sharing of everything that the Father owns is his. He he's views that. He's viewing the whole relationship as this transactional thing. He minimizes the glory that he has in this relationship. He has, in parabolic form here, the parable form, he has exactly what we all want. To be with the Father. For everything that is his to be ours. He has heaven. He has it. And yet he looks at this and he has minimized his relationship with his father. Do you see this? He sees himself as his father's slave. He says, all these years I've been slaving. Imagine that dad looking at his son. You've been slaving? He says, I have obeyed every one of your rules he's made this whole dynamic about the rules and then it's all transactional he's he's slaving getting the rules right because he's expecting a reward for his faithfulness in this way to the rules he he hasn't even gotten a goat in this sinner 
You use all this material wealth that's in the context of the story, his, right? Because that son's already got his inheritance, so it's his. You're using all this worldly wealth to celebrate him. And the father says, you're with me. All the goat is already yours. And you have a relationship with me. What a waste. What a waste. What a prodigal son we have here. And so it's after this story that Jesus doesn't take a breath. He just moves right into some more teaching towards his disciples. And I think it's because of this transactional nature. It triggered it triggered something in him. And he begins with a very difficult to interpret story uh, about money. I had one of our elders walking down the wall last week, hauled out last week. He thought we were on this chapter. He goes, is this the one where we get that really confusing story about, you know, this, the, 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 the dishonest manager that's elevated as an example? And I said, no, that's next week. So here it is. So this is difficult. So just walk into it with me. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. And he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil. He replied, okay, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Pay it. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. He replied, he told him, okay, take your bill, make it 800. The master, this is where it gets confusing. The master in the story commended the dishonest steward, this dishonest manager, because he had acted shrewdly or cleverly. For the people, then Jesus makes this comment. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light, right? Jesus followers. Then he makes this, tries to make this application. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwelling. So it's confusing here because it seems like Jesus is elevating this dishonest manager who buys friendship, right? He uses money and not just that, he uses someone else's money to buy friendship for his own personal gain. And so this is confusing to us and it was confusing to me. And I read about six different commentators to try to figure out uh, what, what's going on here? And this is my takeaway. He's not, in fact, elevating the dishonest manager. In fact, both of these characters are, are kind of scoundrels, okay? Because the, the owner in the Jewish economy and way of operating is not supposed to lend money at an interest to his neighbors. Okay, that's, that's wrong. That's frowned upon. They shouldn't be doing that. So when he finds out his steward is cheating him, he's going to fire him. And he goes, and that, this is why they borrowed an in-kind stuff, you know, oil or, 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 or wheat. You know, they, they trade in that so they can get the interest in there without, you know, kind of being uh, technically wrong. But the manager goes in and he, what's probably happening here is he is not making them pay the interest that they shouldn't have to pay. All right? So... The manager, the owner is impressed with this guy because instead of taking him to court for stealing, right? 
He didn't do that because he would have been exposed. He would have been exposed in court that he was charging interest through this in-kind stuff. If it's out in the public eye, that would be... So they're both kind of bad guys, all right? So what's Jesus doing here? You see it at the end. What he's doing is he's taking a very normal social arrangement, financial arrangement that all his disciples would have been familiar with. And he was just, all he was extracting was the, these people in the world, they know how to take money and advance their life in worldly ways with it. They know how to do that. They know how to do that. And the children of the light do not know how to be clever to be shrewd and to take money and advance in eternal ways. To advance our interest in eternal ways. That's all he's doing here, in my opinion, and from my study. He's, he's just trying to take a very normal social arrangement and he's elevating. The world knows how. They know how to do it. They know how to, uh, to use money to advance that worldly agenda and you need to know how to use money to advance the eternal agenda. That's how he starts this chapter and that's what he's saying. Warren Wearsby, he has this little quote that stood out to me when I was studying him on this. He said, he, he kind of talked about the progression. The thief, what the thief says about money, the thief says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. The selfish person says, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. The Christian says, what's mine is a gift from God. I'll invest it. I'll invest it in kingdom things. That's all it's saying. I hope that clears this up. He's saying worldly people know how to invest their money to invest in worldly things. You, you as my disciples, y'all need to be better at this. You'll need to be better at using money to invest in eternal things. He's going to go on to say something that we need to hear. In our lives, our money is either our master or our money is not our money. Those are the options. Our money, there's no in between. He's going to be clear about this for the rest of the chapter. Our money is either our master or our money is not our money. It's God's money and it is therefore used for God's interests. I know this is hard teaching. All of Jesus' teaching on money is tough. He goes on and says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Now pause here. I've always took this to mean that if I'm trusted with a little money, then maybe he can trust me with a lot of money. So if I'm a good steward with the, the thousand dollars that I have, maybe I can win the lottery. He can trust me. Otherwise, it'd be cruel for him to trust me with a million dollars because I wouldn't be a good steward and that'd be bad. But if I'm a good steward with a little bit of money, maybe then I can be trusted with a lot of money. But that's the next sentence says that's not what he's talking about here. He says, so if you've not been trusting, trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? You see it? There's a distinction between worldly wealth and whatever true riches are. He's not saying true riches is not $1,000, it's a million. No. All worldly wealth is considered a little bit. It's just a small thing. So what's true riches? What's he saying to his disciples? What is he, what is he saying that if I'm not a good steward with finances, remember where we're coming from. If I don't use money for eternal things, then God's not going to trust me with 
true riches or Jesus isn't? What is it? And this is extra biblical. It's not right here. I'm just going from the context of the last three chapters and where he's going. I think true riches are people. That's what in God's economy he values. He values people. We see it in the context here. Remember the older brother? He's like, you, you give him, you, you give him this waste, this whole big fatted calf on this sinner, and you don't even give me a goat, right? He says, we had to, right? He said, we had to celebrate. We had to use it because he's lost and he's found this, this person has been restored. He was dead. Now he's alive. We had to, son. We see it there. What Real, what true riches are, are people. We see it in the crucifixion. Je- Hebrews says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. What? He endured all that torture for the joy of it? What's, what, where's the joy before him? What is the joy? The only thing I can think that Jesus gained in the crucifixion. It wasn't his place in heaven. It was ours. It was ours. All over scripture, I think true riches are people. And so this made me think of something I never thought of. If I am not a good steward of God's money for eternal things, and I find myself where I I never seem to be in a position where I get to influence anyone for the Christ. Like I'm not involved with people's souls. I'm not involved with people's eternity in life. I'm not involved. Maybe I need to check my heart. Maybe I need to see what am I devoted to? Because he goes on and says in no uncertain terms after he says, if, if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And then he says this famous saying, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And in case that's just a little too cryptic, you cannot serve God and money. So I've I've done a whole series on this one verse. So there's just a lot here. But I'll just, again, I'll just have to leave it at this. There is not a statement of Jesus that as I've aged, I have more tried to disprove than this one. As I, I, in other areas of my Christian life, this is confession time, in other areas of my Christian life, I feel like I've taken ground, I've matured, I've grown in the area of money. As I engaged this week in chapter 16, I realized as I've gotten older, I have not grown in this. It feels like when I was younger, I did a better job of living out the ideals that I read of Jesus. And I, I, I lived out more faith in terms of money and something about getting older and my kids getting older and security and spending money investing in, I don't know, just it seems like I am being confronted by this. And so unintentionally, I think I have been trying, can't I prioritize money and God? And I'm telling you, I have found plenty of Christians that say yes to that. You can prioritize money and God. Even you right now, you're probably arguing with it. I am. That's how slippery, that's how deceptive this is. But let's go back to what Jesus said. You cannot prioritize both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. But can't I? I know I'm not, I'm not giving you like 
simple answers here today. I'm giving you a prayer assignment, really. <laughs> That's it. I'm giving you a prayer assignment. I, and not just for you, but for me. I need your prayers on this. I have slipped here. I have slipped. And so I, I want to care about this. I want us to pray about this. I want you to pray that I care about it. I want you to pray that we care about it, that you care about it. You don't have to convert all the way to Jesus' ideal by tomorrow. Would you just care? Would you just care? Would you just start thinking about it when you pull out your wallet and realize what we're dealing with? And so I told you, I've confessed to you that I've unintentionally gotten all kinds of rationalizations that make sense of my commitment to God and my commitment to money. And then he shows me the group I belong to when I do that in what he says next, what Luke says next. It says the Pharisees who loved money Pause. The Pharisees are the most devoted group to the Bible that exists at that time. They would say they love God more than anyone, and they would have all kinds of proof of that in their lives of devotion. But Luke says the Pharisees who love money, and based on Jesus' teaching, what does that mean? Just the opposite of what they claim. They do not love God. They love money. So the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Check your heart. As you listen to this, as you listen to a confrontation of how you've operated with money, do you find yourself sneering a little? Yeah. There goes Brian again being all idealistic there goes Brian only quoting the verses that seem to reflect a confronting way and I've got verses that defend how I'm doing it and you may and you may but he goes on and he says you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men but God knows your hearts what's highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight What are we talking about here? What's highly valued in men's hearts? What are we talking about? It's specific. It's not a generic statement. We're talking about money. I highly value money. I have needed it. It has saved me. It has protected me. It has given me security. All kinds of things that I should be depending on God for, money has given me. Do I have a solution for that? Not a simple one. Not down here. But I need to care about it. And I need to pray about it. And I need to get back to the kingdom way. I don't want to hide my trying to serve God in money under the guise of human wisdom. I don't want to sneer at the teachings of Jesus. I just want to hear the teachings of Jesus. And I want to care about it. Look, I can't live out the kingdom way without that Holy Spirit doing the work anyway. But the Holy Spirit won't do that work and convert me to the kingdom way if I don't care about it, if I'm sneering at his teachings. Would you care about it with me? Listen, I'm not calling you to condemn yourself or anyone else about where we fall short in our view and our use of money. 
I just want you to stop justifying where we fall short with reasonable arguments of men. With very reasonable, and you can even get an amen from other Christians on that and get your heart to care. And as if that wasn't enough, he ends this chapter and he brings like some major weight to it. He, he brings now not just teaching that's confronting. He tells a story that brings the weight of eternity to bear on the subject of money. I'm so sorry he does this, but he does it. He tells a story that brings the weight of eternity to this teaching that he has on money. As if he's not already been clear enough, he's now going to weight it down. We don't know if this is a parable. He didn't call it a parable. But whether it's a parable or a story of actual people that these disciples would have known, doesn't matter. The, the meaning is embedded in the story. Listen to it. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So that's scene one. It's like, I feel like this is like a simplistic view of just God's view of earth. There's those with, there's those without. That's, so that, that's scene one. Scene two has the same character, characters, but we move to an eternal picture. That's scene two. The time came when the beggar died and angels carried him to Abraham's side. All right, so that's good. That, in the Jewish, that would be some you know, form of the right place, right? Heaven. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. Okay, that's pretty clear. That's the bad place, right? He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things? Well, Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. It's been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, and nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the, from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Ugh, there's a lot of stuff in here too, but I'll just point out that Jesus is going for the throat with this story as he weights down the subject of money with eternal implications. So I know that's, that's difficult for us and scary a little bit. But I want you to remember, I told you last week, he's not trying to be harsh. He's not trying to be cruel. He's not trying to be unrealistic. He's not trying to be judgmental in that condemning sort of way because some of his followers don't get it right, if not all of them. He's not trying to do that. He is, he is sharing with his disciples because he loves them. He loves you. He knows how things work, including money, 
including money in this life. He knows how men think about it and how they write books about it, but he knows the truth. And so he's just, it sounds harsh, it sounds punishing, but he is trying to win you to the way it works, the best possible way, what's available to you. That's what he's doing here. And so he begins with this masterful scene that exhibits what we're experiencing now in this life, and then he moves to that other scene abruptly to the next. And Lazarus, destined for heaven, whatever that's going to be like, and the rich man destined for hell, whatever that's going to lead. So there's just a couple of things I want us to take away from this story as we finish up today. First, what we do or do not do with our money in this life matters. That's pretty clear. What we do or do not do with our money in this life matters. It's not a neutral subject. It matters. So I can't find anything. Mike Copes who pointed this me, out to me when I was in college and it stuck with me. I can't find anything in this little scene that the rich man proactively, preemptively actually did wrong. Like he didn't do anything to Lazarus. He didn't like, he doesn't begrudge him eating the scraps from his table. He might even see that as part of his benevolence to him. He doesn't get the police to get him off my property. This, 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 this scoundrel, you know, get him off my property. He doesn't, we don't even have a reflection of him having any internal like judgment of him or anything. He doesn't do anything wrong. And yet we jump to this scene. What, what do we take away from that? It's what he didn't do that was wrong. That's, that's what we take away. It's what he didn't do. The problem is he just accepts Lazarus as just a normal part of the landscape to him, it must have made perfect sense that he's poor and he is wealthy. And so he has his lifestyle and station in life and Lazarus has his. That's the only thing that's condemnable in the story that leads to this picture. And so I don't know what to do with that except that to conclude that what we do or don't do with our money matters. Now, I think, and you know me enough to know, I'm going to ask why. Why does it matter? Because it makes it, and some of you are inclined to do this, like that older son. You're, you're inclined to make it a transactional statement Jesus is making. You do the right things with your money, you get to go to heaven. Right? You, it, do you see how small of a leap that is? It's just so easy to take this statement that what we do or don't do with our money matters and to attach it as a tra- and to minimize our relationship with God as this transactional thing. I got to get right with my money so that I go to heaven. It, that's not hard to do, right? Am I wrong? That's not what he's doing. So we have to ask why in the context of this story, in the context of all of Scripture and the gospel, because this story doesn't get to usurp the gospel. That says you can never do enough and you're not getting there by doing well enough. It is grace or it is nothing for us. That's just the bottom line, church. So why? Because what we do or do not do with our money reflects who or what we love and are devoted to. That's why it matters. What he's saying is uh, maybe unlike any other thing you will ever experience or encounter in your life, money reflects 
who or what you love. Your use of money reflects what's going on in the heart. So we need to remind ourselves here, I want to guard your heart of this, even while I'm warning you in the same breath, that the rich man wasn't condemned because he was rich and Lazarus wasn't saved because he was poor. In this same story, Abraham, who I guarantee you was wealthier than this rich man, is depicted in heaven. So it's not about that. It's not about that. No, what it's about is what this teaching is doing, what he is telling his disciples and therefore what he's telling you and me is that what you do with your money reflects where your heart is. That's what he cares about. So the question for today is not what are you gonna do with your money today? It's where is your heart? That's the question. Get that right and what you do with your money will be right. Get that right and it will be reflected in what you do with money. So when I ask, go ahead and ask our elders and our ministers and their spouses, they're gonna move around the room here and come up front. And if you need a prayer on this or in anything, that's why they do this. The underlying challenge of this chapter is to be faithful or faithful, okay? Like being full of faith in regards to money. And so the questions that kind of expose where your heart is through the lens of money might be something like this. Are you faithful in how you use your money? Do you use your money for worldly security and pleasure? Or do you use your money as an investment towards eternal security and to engage in eternal types of pleasures? Do you hear the teachings of Jesus? Not just here, but in other places, like difficult ones, like don't store away in barns. Do you hear things like that and sneer at it and justify it with the arguments of men? I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm trying to get you to care that the teachings of Jesus don't seem to jive with what makes sense to me and what seems sensible and is pragmatic in my use of money here on earth. I just want you, you don't have to change everything. You don't have to tear down all your barns, close all your bank accounts. I'm asking you to care, to care that there might be something there for you that he wants to give to you. How about this one? Do the poor play any part at all in your financial life? Do the poor play any part in your life? Is your kingdom focus demonstrated in any way relating to the poor? And this one, the older brother teaches us to ask, are you faithful in regards to money only outwardly? Like you, you are trying to buy your salvation by being faithful to some rule. Good, good rule of tithing or giving to the poor or whatever, but you're not doing it because you're with me 
and everything I have is yours. You're not doing it because of that. You're doing it because it's a rule and you want the goat in transactional way from God. You want heaven. Or are you doing it with all your heart? My call today, again, is not to condemn you. It's not for you to leave here and heavy with guilt or skip spending money on lunch today with your family and giving it to the guy on the corner. It's not, that's not it. My call is the call of Christ. It's the call for you to care. To care and to be aware of how you use your money and to be devoted to God alone and not your money and to let your view and use of money fall ever increasingly aligned with Christ to where eventually you can say, all my money is not my money. And I use it all as an investment in my ultimate pleasure that's on people for eternal reasons. Don't you want to be able to say that? You probably don't, but don't you want to? Let's pray. Let's pray. And if you need a prayer on this or in any area, please come as we stand and sing.